Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. It's been almost a month. Yeah. And it'll be... Um, I don't know when we're doing another one. We're like, it just our schedule's so fucked up lately. I guess we'll do one in two weeks. Yeah. So that'll be that won't be too bad. Um, but uh, yeah, we try we try to do these every week. But um, it's this just time been, of year, like, especially, I I feel like with holidays, all and kinds of both things. of us went on vacation. Yeah, I feel like it's uh, just at different uh, times. Yeah. So yeah, this is going back to before my the, today's movie journal will cover before I went to France, which already yeah. feels like it was weeks ago to me, and this goes back before. Sure. So uh, we have a lot to get to. Yeah. Uh, why don't you kick us off? All right. So this is a film that I, you know, you go back and you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. That was a while ago. Yeah, I'm going to have the same uh, thing. I watched Terrence Malick's A Hidden Life. Oh, great. Which, yes, I have seen this. Yes, which I really loved. Um, I've not seen his last couple of films. Um, to the Wonder is the the last film okay. that I saw. I did not see Night of Cups. Okay. I heard good things about Song of Songs, and I heard bad things about Song of Songs. Yeah, I, I, I would be curious to see where you fall on it, because yeah. I'm definitely very, very pro Song of Songs with some minor reservations, and my reservations have to do with in terms of the milieu in which Song of Songs is set, which is like the Austin, Texas sort of indie rock sure. scene, I don't feel that... I. It doesn't feel like Terrence Malick cares that much about that scene. Okay, yeah. Whereas... It takes hit, you out of it. Um, a little bit, yeah, because it, 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 like, I, I, mean, I, I do believe he cares about his characters, because I always believe he cares about his characters, mm-hmm. but um, it takes me out a little bit. But that's it's a minor, because I still think Song of Songs is great. Sure. Is great. But... Um, a Hidden Life, on the other hand, I feel like is something he... It feels like a passion project in a way. I feel like he Very really, much so. really wanted to tell this guy's story. And clearly wanted it to t- wanted to tell it this way. It's a film that I, I adored. Um, I knew going in that it was long, and that it's like, all right, a long Terrence Malick film. And I don't mean to imply that his movies are a chore, but you need to recalibrate your brain. I need to recalibrate my, calibrate, yeah, my brain a little bit when I go in. Uh, that's like, all right, this is going to be not exclusively visual, but it's going to be heavily visual. I would say minimal dialogue. Um, like, but do you that's feel, kind of you feel what that I he expect. kind of, as an artist, he kind of does the recalibration for you? If you surrender to it, that's, that, and that's sur- what ended up happening yeah. to me, except, I, sorry, what, um, where'd you see it? I saw it on the Fox lot. Um, okay, so uh, in the little theater, in the little theater, which is not the smallest theater, by the way. I know it's very confusing. Yeah, we little theater. So okay, so you were in a very comfortable theater. Yeah, absolutely. I saw it at the. Um, where did I see it? I saw it at the Winter Garden, I think, or the Elgin, one of the theaters in Toronto. At mm-hmm. Toronto, that's an old theater. It's very pretty, yeah. but. It's old, not the most comfortable. Sure. You had the benefit of having those nice, I the, did. those nice, those nice seats. Um, yeah, I could talk about, uh, you know, if you get me onto movie studio lots, yes. I could talk all day, but I, it does crack me out that the little theater is the uh, second smallest theater on the Fox lot. Yeah. I think I've been to, I think I've been to all of the theaters on the Fox lot. I don't, I feel like I don't go there very often, but I've been there a fair amount. Well, there, I mean, that, that's the thing about all these lots is there's, theaters that like I mean, you probably have never been like because yeah. okay there's the three main ones on the fox lot there's yeah. like 
the big one. Yes. There's the little theater, which is the middle one. Mm-hmm. And then there's, I think the one that's called like the William Fox the theater, Fox, which yeah. is the tiny one. But there's also one that's just like building 220 or whatever that I've, that they've used a lot in recent years. I went, I saw like red sparrow there and stuff like that. Like been... Ferdinand. Um, but, uh, so that's the thing. Every time you think that's what I love about these, these, these lots. Every time you think, you know it. Yeah. Uh, suddenly they're like, Oh yeah, you're in here. Well, they have so many rooms that are essentially screening rooms. Like I remember, yeah. uh, on the Disney lot, there are multiple theaters of course. And then there are some where it's like, all right, it's going to be, you go into this office building, go to the second floor and, uh, yeah, there's a little screening room in there. You're really talking that's on the other side of Riverside, the ABC building? No, I don't think so. Okay. Okay. It was, that... it was years ago. I don't remember. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's still All there. Right. We're way anyway. off topic. Uh, so yeah. Uh, yeah, it's the, it's the surrender that I'm talking about is like, I just need to know that like, all right, my expect, I have expectations for a Malik film and I have expectations for a more conventional film. I need to get rid of those. Remember what I know about Malik. And even then kind of removing that and just letting whatever's going to happen, happen. And <clears throat> the film is unsurprisingly gorgeous. Uh, lots of wide angle photography, unsurprisingly. Um, and it's just, it's so beautiful and so patient. And, you know, within the first, within the first hour, I say that as though if it were any other movie, you say for the first half, but here within yeah. the first hour of the film, uh, you definitely understand how it connects to like current conversation current cultural and political conversations but which is fine but what i actually like is that once the plot really gets going and once the our main character is separated from his family we're still dealing with some of that but it's also it also gets bigger and broader and the idea it's like yeah like the things you believe you may find yourself in the minority and you might actually stand to lose a lot by saying those things. And that's just what it's going to have to be. Like that's, if you like, you can choose to, you know, we all have different priorities. You can choose to put those aside and be with your family, whatever it is. Uh, and there are different levels of consequences, obviously, but like it, it really is just a beautiful film about conviction, uh, and, and having the, I don't know, just, and sticking to them. And what's interesting, what I love about it is that his conviction and his commitment to it without him being overtly aggressive or even passive aggressive towards other people, it seems to, in Christian terms, convict other people. That Bruno Gans scene is Mm -hmm. great. And that line almost brought a tear to my eye when he says, do you judge me? Hmm. And just like, this is a guy who is on a tribunal. He shouldn't care that this guy judges him, but he sees that this is a man of integrity and a man of integrity who judges you. It's just like, I don't care what status he has. Like (laughs) it means something. So that, that scene is, is really powerful. And then what, and there's this motif that happens, starts happening about halfway through where people are saying like, no one knows about this. No one knows about this protest of yours. And you're not even really doing it in protest, which makes it even less well known. And it just got me. And that really got me this feeling of like, that's why, that's why the movie's called a hidden yeah, life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That quote at the end, which I found out is like used heavily in the trailer, but I didn't see it until yeah, they yeah, reveal it at the end. Um, 
And what I like is that he's not even, again, he's not doing this with any intention of people knowing about it. And yet everyone just keeps trying to appeal to that aspect of it, knowing, and he's like, well, that doesn't mean anything to me. Um, But the film is like, yeah, this is when we, understandably so, when we think of movies like Selma or Chariots of Fire or A Man for All Seasons, like these are public figures mm. and this guy is absolutely not and we allow ourselves to to be inspired by these public figures but like yeah even if you don't even if you have no audience except if you'll pardon me except for god which i would say is the argument of the film even if you, that's the only audience you have then that's what it has to be um and it's it's a film that i find inspiring and beautiful and incredibly touching and uh, I I just loved it. I'm glad. It's, yeah. it's definitely in the running for my favorite film of the year. Oh, um, I think right now it's currently second, but uh, you never know. Well, um, uh, uh, yeah, I, I talked about it um, on the TIFF Rev mm-hmm. episode while you were on, on vacation, so I won't go into too much here. But um, yeah, Bruno, you, you mentioned Bruno Gans, also Michael uh, Nyquist, uh, two, yeah, yeah. two actors who have since uh, departed, uh, are both in the movie and both both yeah. have good good scenes. Um, there's also a, a, a shot near the end of the movie of uh, August Steele on a motorcycle that a made me think of Lawrence of Arabia, Absolutely. and b which just it's just one of the most beautiful shots in the mm-hmm. in the movie, not just visually but like what it means at the point it's placed yeah. and why it's placed there all right so uh i watched a movie that is not going to make it onto my top okay. 10 uh list of the year that's conrad vernon and greg tiernan's the adams family oh okay. the <laughs> <Yeah>. new animated <laughs> adams family um yeah it uh, uh it, it it just felt like what i was afraid it was going to be there's a lot of uh sort of what i think of as like the this was so big with live action things in the nineties with like the Brady Bunch movie or the Beverly Hillbillies movie. Hillbillies movie. It's like, let's take this thing from the past yeah. and put it in the present or whatever. Yeah. And the Brady Bunch movie is successful. That one does it really and, well. And I, and I feel like, yeah. And so that's what, uh, the Adam Sandler movie, uh, is. It's definitely not, um, I mean, I joked that if it turns one kid into a goth, then it'll be sure. worth it. Um, but uh, it's not goth enough for me. <laughs> it's also just not very funny. Like, yeah. there are two things I laughed at out loud in the movie. One of them, very uncharacteristically for me, was a fart joke. But it's not... Like, there's no actual... characteristic. But there's you. no actual, like, fart that happens. It's a joke about a fart it's a joke around a fart yeah Yeah. and it's nick kroll (laughs) voicing it he's the voice of uncle fester um and he's very funny and then the other thing i laughed out loud at even though it's it's one of the kind of corny puns that are it just felt like such an adam's family joke adam's family pun you know that uh, that it was perfect, which is when uh, Morticia says to Wednesday, "Don't forget to kick your father good night." <laughs> that's just like I laughed almost because it was like this is what I wanted. This is an, yeah. that's an Adam's family joke. Yeah, the and very like matter it. of fact, terrible thing. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And there's also I, I, this I didn't laugh out loud, but this is a very Adam's family moment where Lurch is the butler. Um, runs his finger along the banister and comes up and there's no dust on it. So he gets out a vacuum cleaner and blows dust all over the staircase. (laughs) That's a good moment. Sure. But, uh, overall it wasn't really worth it. Okay. What else did you see? Uh, I watched James Gray's Ad Astra. I still haven't seen it. Which I also really loved. Um, I, my experience with uh, James Gray is limited, but I really loved, um, 
uh, Lost City of Z. Um, I'm an American, so I say Z. I do what I, I do what I want. Don't tread on me. I, do, I didn't correct I know, you. I'm I say Zed yeah. because the characters say Zed, yeah. and they say Zed because that's what they say. Yeah, that letter here is said as Z, and so that's what I say. But what we're referring to is the character. The British character has named the city Zed, yes. and so therefore, I guess that's I'm what phone. I should call it. It's sort of like how it really is unfortunate. There's a police academy character named Zed because it's the only thing oh. I think of when somebody. You says don't think that. of Zed's Dead Baby from Pulp Fiction? You'd think so, uh, but no. <laughs> that's I, what I think of. I, I love. Uh, the, the, or also, Shaun of the Dead. We don't like. Don't we're not saying the Zed word. You know when oh, they right. don't want to. Yes. yes. Sean doesn't want to acknowledge that, no. that zombies are happening. He says, "Don't say the Zed word." But uh, it's sort of like, okay, the the character from the uh, Cervantes book is Don Quixote. Yes. Right? But if you're behaving like Don Quixote, you're behaving quixotically. Quixotically. Because that is an English word. Yeah. Inspired by a Spanish name, but because it's an English word, you say quixotically, not quixotically. You know, the monks in the documentary Integrate Silence, (laughs) I feel like they've got it worked out. They don't have to deal with any of this shit. It's into great silence. Yes, not Not integrate silence. Not integrate silence. Though that is what they have done. They have integrated silence. Absolutely. That's a good Um, movie. It is a good movie. Um, Yeah. I saw that at a matinee. It was like 11 a.m. with the new art. It's a weird time. It was like a weird time. It almost felt like... Do you feel like you're more awake or less awake? Well, it almost felt, this is going to sound like too simple, but it almost felt like going to church. Sure. Like it went like going to a church service. And I'm sorry to put it in terms of like awake or anything like that, but, uh, or the, the movie's boring or nothing like that, but it, it definitely has a, a very meditative uh, yeah. rhythm. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, right. so at Astra, uh, speaking, Astra speaking, I never forgotten what movie you're speaking <laughs> of such things. Um, yeah, at Astra, it's, it's the kind of science fiction movie I like. Um, I mean, I like most of them, but it's... I'm not sure if I'd go so far as to say that it's hard sci-fi, but tonally and from a pacing standpoint, it absolutely is. And it does what I like about sort of hard sci-fi is that we think of science fiction as a very cold genre, um, which it probably is. You're not going to have a lot of characters like bursting out weeping or anything like that, but... At, at its core, there's nothing cold about it. It's exploring elements of humanity, often spirituality, uh, metaphysics, that kind of thing, and relationships. And that's, in the end, that is what uh, Ad Astra is about. And I think it's a beautifully shot film with a, re- with a really... Maybe it's just because it, it's on my mind because this week I was lecturing about sound. But um, but it, it's sound design, as is the case with, with a lot of uh, space movies. James Gray is committed to this idea that like there's no sound in space, mm-hmm. at least not mm-hmm. extern not externally. So we're going to see this stuff and we're not going to hear anything like, which can absolutely make you feel more removed from it. But to me, I just appreciated it. Just, it just makes everything so much more surreal and unearthly, you know? Well, Firefly got there like 15 years ago. I know, but but again, like <laughs> that is not trying to go with, that doesn't match the tone of Firefly. This bouts of silence uh, feel right mm. for this um, and it's a marvelous performance by Brad Pitt I've said for years he's a very limited actor but within those limitations you, you can't find anyone better like there's 
playing characters that would appear to be detached but are actually heavily invested is a thing that he's quite good at and he does a, a wonderful job carrying the movie um, Tommy Lee Jones is, is in the film as his father who's been stuck possibly completely by himself for many years far away in a space station and when we do uh, encounter him and it's spoilers it's, I guess it's not that big of a spoiler we do encounter him and uh, he is appropriately crazy and it's clearly been a while since he've had he's had to even humor another person so his level of honesty could be seen as so intensely hurtful mm. of of other people um and so the relationship between them is really interesting partially because you know it and and as somebody who has his own father issues insofar as that I lo- I lost my father at a fairly young age as did you you know mm-hmm. the idea that like the story for this character for Brad Pitt's character is that his father was lost, you know, for a long time. I mean, for he thought he was just dead. And now imagine year, you know, we're coming up for me, we're coming up on. No, we've passed 17 years. Pardon me. And so if someone said, by the way, you know how you've been living your life in this way with this belief? Yeah, sorry about that. That's not true. Your dad's alive, mm. and uh, I need you to talk to him. Like, it's uh, how would you even begin to yeah. comprehend that? Like, it's, yeah. it's like an alternate reality. Um, and so, and that is how the film feels. It feels very dreamlike. And I, I just, uh, I really responded to it. I know a lot of people that didn't, but those people are dumb. <laughs> well, um, uh, <laughs> I was going to say something, but it would sound like I was calling you dumb. Aww. Speaking of disagreeing, I saw a movie uh, that I uh, liked quite a bit that you didn't like. I okay. finally caught up with Jordan Peele's Us. Oh, yes. Okay. Um, I, yes, I'm definitely in the minority on this one. And, and I think this is a movie, like, if I'm honest with myself, just like, you know, a side-by-side comparison, I probably like Get Out better because Get Out, I think, is so perfect it's so accomplished it sets out to do a thing it does it so well yes us, it feels complete it, yes in many ways. very much yes. it has fewer seams us feels a little bit messier um uh, and, and in some ways a little bit more nebulous and I think it fails at more things that get out did, but I find myself thinking about us. It's been like a month now since I've seen it almost. And I think about it all the time. Like I, I, I keep going back and to the point where I think I like it more than I did when I told, cause last time I saw, uh, when I told you I'd seen it was the day after I saw it, the day mm-hmm. of our fantasy awards season draft. Yeah. It was the day after I saw it. Um, and I think I like it even more now because the stuff that I didn't like about it has faded a little bit, mm-hmm. which is mostly the stuff that I didn't like about it is the fact that I don't think it works very well as a horror movie because the first 45 minutes do and then it switches uh, gears i think completely which uh, is not a crime but i think it goes a lot broader and it, it goes broader and i think there's stuff that's funny and i sure. think but I, I think jordan peele's background in comedy his interest in making stuff that's funny even in a dark way sort of let it lets too much of the tension out of the sure. what should be the suspense the horror suspense parts there are parts where the family's like split up mm-hmm. and he's playing these comedy beats when I'm thinking if I'm a member of this family I'm thinking I have to get back to my family yeah. like there are killer doppelgangers on the loose yeah. and I don't know where my two kids are and then but but the, the movie's not playing those in the moment that kind of frustrated me in the moment that said 
all that said, I found the the movie to be uh, visually richer um, than 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 Get Out. I think the performances across the board are unassailable. I think I'm uh, I'm very glad that Lupita Nyong'o is in the awards conversation. Yeah. I think in a just world, Tim Heidecker for, as supporting actor would also be in the awards and conversation. I think Winston Duke mm-hmm. uh, does a great like that's a hard character to play without tipping too far in either direction, and I think he does a great job of it. Um, he definitely because he, he's not an inconsiderate husband, nor is he completely dense. He's but he is a little bit. But he also has the best. Um, <laughs> the the biggest laugh or the best comedy uh, reading for me is the conversation about which member of the family has killed the most doppelgangers and he settles it, you know, um, yes, like a and, dad would. Uh, and it's, it's a very funny moment. Um, uh, that's a bit to address your complaints. I, 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 I keep coming back. Like I keep coming back to your review and you're talking about on the movie journal. I just don't see what you were talking about. The idea that the allegory takes the driver's seat that happened way more in get out. Now it happened without breaking the spell. Right. But maybe that's I, what it is. I, I don't feel like the allegory is nearly as, as, as cut and dry in, in us. And I also don't think it's nearly as crucial to enjoying the movie on its own merits. Um, in, in fact, I think maybe the, uh, the movie does too much explaining, like the, the fact that it offers some sort of background for who the doppelgangers, or the tethered or whatever mm-hmm. are, or how they came to be or the, where their living space is. I was like, I don't care. That's not, I wasn't thinking about that. Sure. I don't care. Like this could just be like a weird outer limits. Like, uh, I should say twilight zone because Jordan Peele does yeah. the twilight zone show. It, it could just be like, uh, this is a uh, just a metaphysical manifestation of some, uh, I don't need the That's, explanation of, where they how they eat or where they get their jumpsuits or what i don't don't care that's part of my Uh, that's part of my issue is that like i feel like he shows us more than i'm actually curious about yeah like if he had stuck with again you mentioned i forget exactly what you said but like it keeps the 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 spell or the magic or whatever it is yeah uh, yeah, it breaks the spell a little bit whereas get out didn't get out does not and then and and i think it's just so focused on like world building at a time when I'm like, no, you had a story going and I was really invested in that. And now you're focused on showing us all this. Like, no, I don't, I'm fine with the mystery. Mm -hmm. And then, and then like the reveal at the end, it's, I, I saw it coming so much so that I was like, they're not going to, I don't know what the reveal is. uh, Bart Stoppelganger Treehouse of horror, uh, thing. I don't know what that is either. Okay. Um, Oh, but I think, yeah, you know what I mean? Like the switcheroo, I think, um, Actually, I don't think I know. I knew that going in, so I wasn't. Oh, okay. Think, um, it didn't bother me at all. Um, and I'm not someone who tries to like guess anything. I wasn't trying to guess. I wasn't it. trying it's, to guess. I, I yeah. literally. Okay. I didn't. There are certain movies like I'm trying to Parasite. I haven't seen yet, and that okay. seems like a movie I don't want to be spoiled for. Sure. A lot of other movies, I will not actively like go to spoiler sites and look stuff up. Yeah. Because I don't care that much, but I won't go out of my way if there's like, oh, a critic I like wrote something about us. I haven't seen it yet, but yeah. I'm not going to deny myself reading this thing. Yeah. So I think that's how. I, like same with like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I knew what yeah. the ending was going in oh, okay. because I had read enough. I was interested enough to. Read 
read enough uh, out of can that I that I knew. So I, that's not the point. The point I is, just, I just don't want to give the impression to you or the listener that I'm one of these people who, when there when there is a twist that I thought was going to happen, I'm like called it. It's not. <laughs> yeah. I don't think like that. I, yeah. I you know, but I saw where we were headed, and I was like, well, surely we're not going there. And then we did, and I was like, oh, that's um, disappointing. Yeah, and I didn't think give it a second thought because I because I knew it. You knew it all, um, yeah. But I think, uh, and I, I I don't want to sound like I'm talking down about Get Out because I still love Get Out. But I do think, and I, and I referenced this before, visually, if this is, seems like a huge leap forward, sure. for him, it's there's so many things that are. Uh, I mean, beautiful is my go-to word, word but like darkly transfixing and beautiful mm-hmm. and hard to look away from and um terrifyingly funny at the same time uh and just things like i mean the 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 color the like burgundy jumpsuits and the gold scissors is yeah. inspired it looks they look so cool yeah. <laughs> uh, next to each other it's i would say visually i would describe it as very self-assured and on a filmmaking standpoint, I think it's a very worthy follow-up to get out because he's challenging himself. From a screenwriting standpoint, I think that's where it falls apart. But it is more challenging. I mean, it's more challenging, but I think in other ways he meets that challenge and in the screenwriting, I don't think he does. Uh, All right, what did you watch? I'm sorry, I did did a lot of talking and that was your... No, that's fine. That was your moment to shine. I'm Um, pretty sure I shined. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like I shined. I, need, I think you just need to try a little harder to shine. Um, okay. I watched, uh, I don't know. I was in the, Jen was out of town and I was bored. So I watched Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Um, okay. And this is the sequel to the, the Brian Cranston, Julia Binoche vehicle, yes. Godzilla from yes. 2014. It's their vehicle and they, they're both dead a half hour in. Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> she's dead one scene in uh, spoilers yeah sorry um, um although did you hear apparently this is confirmed by julie Pinoche that she only took the role in godzilla because a character the character she was going to play in clouds of sils maria was a julie Pinoche type but who had done like an x-men movie and she was like basically as character research for that role that's the only reason she took the job in godzilla a lot of things are falling into place now um <laughs> Yeah, uh, so in high school, I... Uh, I was going to ask, do either of them return in King of the Monsters, but apparently they... they do not, no. Uh, some characters return, and I'm sorry, David, they don't make it. Um, okay. But, uh, so in high school, I was a big Godzilla fan. And one of the... Are you excited about that uh, Criterion uh, Spine number 1000? A little, Godzilla? yeah. Yeah, it's very cool. If for no other reason, because that artwork is just gorgeous. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, it's I was I was really into Godzilla. My friend and I would would watch uh, Godzilla movies sometimes to laugh at them, but son of a bitch if I wasn't invested. Sure. Um, and so when Godzilla King of the Monsters was announced, my worry, which turned out to be justified, um, was that like you now have like you've got Mothra, you've got Rodan, you've got King Ghidra, you've got all of these big things along with Godzilla and a, I was worried that Godzilla himself would be overshadowed, but then also it's like, it's just nothing but CGI spectacle. How could I possibly hope to be invested? Uh, and for the most part that is true, but then there's also the curious part of me. It's like, 
when they announced when they announced which monsters were going to be in, I was like, all right, how are they going to interpret these characters? Okay, and I think they do a pretty good job with it. Um, and I think they also get us a little bit more invested in the human characters, uh, Vera Farmiga and Kyle Chandler. Um, and I think they, uh, Charles dance. Um, and I think they do a good job with that so that when we are spending time with the human characters, uh, I'm okay with it. And it deals with the idea that, you know, Godzilla's triumph at the end of the first one, uh, still resulted in many, many people dying. Uh, and one of them is Kyle Chandler and Vera Farmiga's son. And so they don't have the positive association with Godzilla savior of humanity that other people do. Hmm. And it also, one of the things that I like about that 2014 one and is less emphasized here, but still they do a pretty good job with it is that like, Godzilla doesn't even know we exist. Hmm. None of them know we exist. They swat us away like flies. Like Godzilla's not trying to save anybody. He's trying to be king of the monsters, just like Ghidra is. And so that idea that we are just so insignificant to these things, but that we put so much significance onto them for our own purposes is something that the first one really delves into. And I like that a lot. This one, they do it a little bit, not as much as I would have liked, but, uh, the film itself is just kind of boilerplate. I enjoyed watching it, but in the end, who cares? All right. Um, next up for me is, uh, uh, a documentary that, um, is, I think, um, opening wider just this weekend actually and that's lauren greenfield's the kingmaker mm-hmm. lauren greenfield directed the queen of versailles yep and she did uh, generation wealth uh last year or two years ago um the kingmaker is in some ways a departure in some ways very much on brand mm-hmm. for her the kingmaker is a documentary about imelda marcos um the uh former first lady of the philippines uh wife of ferdinand marcos mm. um uh, I don't know what you know about the Marcos very little reign of the Philippines, but uh, basically they went fine. They pilfered billions of dollars out of the economy, lived very, very high, um, uh, high on the high on the hog. Is that yeah, a, that's the saying? Yeah. Um, he instituted a policy of martial law that um, was fascist and violent, and that led to people being beaten and jailed indiscriminately and killed. Um, and then was eventually exiled and died in exile. Uh, but now in a similar way to how, uh, other fascist movements that, uh, everyone sort of agreed were terrible, uh, seem to have come back. Um, Imelda Marcos son, uh, bong bong is his name. Um, is at the time of the documentary running for vice president. And so apparently in the Philippines, unlike in the U S it's not a ticket. You vote for president and vice president separately. Hmm. Um, which is interesting. Um, so he's running for vice president at this time. So, and people are embracing him. People who, because things are, you know, bad, uh, for many people in the Philippines economically, they sort of turn to, strongmen uh as we've seen throughout at least 20th century history probably throughout most human history you mean like guys in uh, like those leotards with the mustaches yeah, you hans know. and franz yeah um <laughs> the, those type types um and, and so lauren greenfield is making this documentary that is uh, is sort of split into is a document about who imelda marcos 
was up to this point and as a document about what's going on in the Philippines right now and Imelda Marcus and her the fact that she at 90 years old has maneuvered herself gone from being the despised shame of the Philippines to moving maneuvering herself back into being a uh, kingmaker is the, mm-hmm. that's what the name of the, where the name uh, comes from um, and so it's you know um, Lauren Greenfield has her work up to this point has never been overtly political there's always been political undertones to sure, uh, to it um, but this is a movie that is about politics um, and on, but on the other hand this is a movie about someone who lives grotesquely extravagantly wealthy uh, a wealthy life um, uh, the opening scene is Imelda Marcos being driven through like a, a essentially very poor neighborhood and rolling down the window and handing out literally just handing out cash to poor kids. Um, well, good for her. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then we hear about like, so we get to, and what I love about Lauren Greenfield is that unlike so many people, especially in the last, I would say since like the George W. Bush era, there've been so many documentaries that are like, this person's a piece of shit. I'm gonna make a document about what a piece of shit they are. Right. And those, even when I agree with them, which I often do, uh, they're not really interesting, you know, yeah. they're just hit pieces. Whereas Lauren Greenfield, by her own admission, I don't know if you saw Generation Wealth. I know you saw Queen of Versailles. Yeah, I, I love Queen of Versailles. I don't know if you saw Generation Wealth, but mm-hmm. by her own admission, part of the reason she's devoted her entire photographic and filmmaking career to rich people is because she's kind of obsessed with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the fact that, that this isn't just like a, two hour let's just sneer at Imelda Marcos that part of this is Leonard Greenfield being like this is look at this life she leads this is this is this is fascinating um uh it gives a more uh, a more complex look at her but of course Lauren Greenfield is a smart journalistic person and does not um let herself be swayed too much because we'll hear uh like oh it's so crazy how she did all these things with her money and then we get an interview about villagers who were kicked out of their homes and off of their land so that the Marcuses could build an exotic animal park from animal, like of animals they bought in Kenya. Like they had, they had a ton of like giraffes and shit shipped to the Philippines from Kenya, kicked by like essentially flattened a village and told people you have to move and then built an exotic animal park. And this is something that Emma the Marcos is like, you can still, there's still giraffes today that you can go see. It's a wonderful thing. Whereas these yeah. people are like, we lost our home that we, that my family yeah. had been on for, uh, for centuries and also the giraffes are poorly taken care of and are now all inbred but I was going to say I can imagine yeah, they're still giraffes but they're like and it's very sad like they're they can't hold their heads all the way up in some oh. cases because they like their inbreeding uh, has uh, destroyed their gene pool so it's uh, yeah the movie does not like it, it isn't it's neither fucking Melda Marcos or wouldn't it be nice to live like a Melda Marcos it kind yeah. of like uh uh goes back and forth in a way that's way more interesting. I would say, and I like, I've liked Lauren Greenfield's work up to this point. This might be my favorite of her three films. Um, definitely worth checking out. All right. Speaking of such things, um, I did see, uh, Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. Okay. Um, no spoilers. (laughs) Here's the deal. Here's what I'm going to say. It's going to be in my top 10. Oh, I know that already. Well, you know what? You never know. Yeah, you never know. There's a lot of movies that haven't come out yet. That's true. Dark Waters hasn't come out yet. Midway 
Midway looks so <laughs> awful, doesn't it? It's, is it Roland Emmerich? Yeah. Yeah, of course it is. Uh, it's like he's found a new uh, director to ape, yeah. uh, which is Nolan now, I feel like. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think what else is coming out that might make your list, though. There, I mean, there are several things. Yeah. Uh, I may wind up like, I mean, I haven't seen The Irishman yet. Richard Jewell? Richard Jewell I'm interested in, um, not just because I'm... Best friends. Besties. I, I would say friends at this point. I was yeah. going to say acquaintances. I don't think that's true anymore. Yeah, you're friends with uh, like he and I've been texting. Uh, he and I have been texting while he's like over in London acting in the Cruella de Vil movie. And uh, it's like we were just texting earlier today. That's um, very cool. It's very strange is what it is. Uh, and I'm sure he'd be the first one to say that uh, he was not expecting this. I... I'm very excited that like I, regardless of whether I knew him or not, I'm very excited that like I, Tanya propelled him on to yeah. other things. Cause yeah. I think he is great yeah. and it would have been easy to kind of put him aside in favor of the, the already known people that are doing fun things. Um, but anyway, uh, no, I'm excited for Richard Jewell. I'm excited for, um, the Irishman, um, uh, pain and glory there are there are still several movies that i think i could i could enjoy um but so there's a possibility that uh parasite will be bumped out of my top 10 and also out of my honorable mentions seems unlikely given okay. how much i love it okay um so when we do our end of the year episode i will speak more in depth about the things I like about it. Okay. Um, I'm not necessarily thinking in terms of spoilers, but it's more just there are plot developments that are, they're not shocking or anything like that, but there's just such a natural progression of story and character that I wouldn't, and I I knew nothing about the movie going in, and I'm glad I didn't. It's not like a twist fest or anything like that. It's just... Everything has tremendous logic to it. And if I were to jump to like this plot point, which is maybe like five or six plot points in, it's like, no, no, no. It's not about spoiling it. It's that you need to get there on your own uh, to really understand and appreciate what's going on. So I, in, broad, in the broadest possible terms, I'll just say that like the cast does a wonderful job, specifically like the four members of the family they interact with each other there's a familiar familiarity there that can be hard to replicate the familiarity in shorthand so that's a function of the script it's a function a function of the actors um the way that he the the patience of his editing combined with the i'd say cool curious if it's possible to have curious detachment, uh, then I think he does. Um, but he still has tremendous love for all of his characters while also finding tremendous humor in the things that they do. Um, I really, uh, I was so happy. I saw it. I really loved it. All right. I saw Lorraine Scafaria's hustlers. Okay. Um, I was really looking forward to it and it, it did not disappoint. Um, I feel like, uh, did you see the meddler? I forget. Uh, I never saw the meddler. Okay. No. Um, but I, feel, I, I went in being like, yeah, obviously everyone's making Martin Scorsese comparisons. And then I went in and I was like, Oh, those are actually maybe more apt. They seem superficial, okay. but they're more apt. Uh, uh it, it's not just, um, you know, 
anti-hero criminals getting up to like cool deeds or whatever <laughs> like it is a it's a very character and performance focused movie that also is fun to watch but also you know never lets you forget uh, it, it's everything i wanted to, to be in the sense of like what an anti-hero is that like we're equal parts like sympathetic to why these women commit the crimes they did. Mm-hmm. We're also a little bit on their side because of who their, who their victims were for the most part as people who are, you know, often, uh, real life villains, uh, a- anyway, but the movie also, um, never lets us forget that, they really like hurt people. They really fucked up people's lives and this wasn't okay. And this yeah. was illegal for a reason. Um, and, uh, it, it, so it did feel like it had that sophistication, not just the style and milieu of a Scorsese movie. It had the sophistication both, um, cinematically and, um, moralistically. And then the other thing that everyone has been saying about it, that once again, they're right is, Jennifer Lopez has not been good, this good in the movie in a long time. And it's mm-hmm. great. It's so great to see her, um, to, you know, back when yeah, I loved her so much and out of sight, yeah. you know, and Selena. Um, she's great. in Selena. You know, I well. never saw Selena. I oh, you'd that. love it. Um, you know, and I, and I've, and I've liked her here and there, you know, but she's done a lot of stuff that it wasn't really my, either. I didn't see stuff like the wedding planner or last, right. last year. I didn't love, second act i didn't hate it either but like I forget that she's in the cell um i never, I never saw you know what no i did see you the, saw cell. the cell right yeah i did see the cell i have no memory of it really uh anyway um uh yeah so she's she's great but uh the whole cast is great constance Wu is as uh, the lead is great you've got um uh julia styles uh whom i've always been a fan of as the um I guess sort of the Joseph Cotton and Citizen Kane uh, oh, okay. um, type of character. Um, it's an important character. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, no, not Joseph Cotton. Um, Joseph Cotton is one of the ones who's interviewed. Who's the interviewer? In oh. Citizen Kane. Who's the reporter? That's, uh, well, uh, I mean, the character's name is Thompson. Yeah. Okay. That's who I'm thinking of. Not Joseph Cotton, who's the, uh, yeah. The, William Allen. Uh, okay. William Allen is William, the name of that actor. That's Julia Stiles is playing the William Allen role. Okay. Uh, from Citizen Kane. Um, and, and, and she's really great. Uh, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, would recommend, would see it again. I'll, I'll admit, uh, the trailer fooled me. Um, I, I, I haven't re- seen the trailer. One of the reasons that I was reluctant to see the film is because it's not what you, it's, it's, is because it, it puts itself out there as such a, it's like, well, these women have been uh, wronged and thus everything they do is perfectly justifiable and lots of fun and let's all high five each other. It'll be great. And that regardless of the situation, regardless of gender or race, I don't like that attitude in movies and the film seems to be, but I also given the director's like, there's gotta be more to it than yeah, that. It's a really um, uh, character wise. It's very complex and that like, Constance Wu and Jennifer Lopez are essentially end up becoming sort of like protagonists and antagonists. Jennifer oh, Lopez wow. sort of becomes the bad guy of the movie. And yet their friendship is still the emotional core of the movie. Oh, and it's like, exciting. It really believes it. I, I think the movie has its head in the right place. Moralistically where both characters fall, fall and yet recognizes that the friendship between them, 
uh, is something that is that meant a lot and will mean a lot for the rest of their lives, even if they never see each other again. It's like that wonderful scene in Talladega Nights, where oh man, you'd love that as well. That you'd really like that one. I don't, I don't watch movies really. I don't watch the. I don't like movies. I get it. <laughs> By and large, they're not that good. Um, anyway, uh, okay. Uh, I watched Ari Aster's Midsummer. Okay, I haven't seen this one yet either. Um, I, I really liked Hereditary. Hereditary. I think I liked it more than you. Uh, by yeah. which I mean, I like it more as a movie more than I like you as a friend. <laughs> uh, I realized once I structured the sentence yeah. that way, I'm like, ah. no, I like that. Um, no, it's uh, Ari Aster's just doing some really interesting stuff. And while Midsummer might not be quite as interesting insofar as it's not as innovative, it's very Wicker Man, uh, you know, just kind of the idea of, and there's some Rosemary's Baby in there, just the idea that, like, our main characters are being manipulated by people that are have control over them pretty much the whole time. Um, and that's not going, that is certainly not a spoiler. There's just this sense of, Dread and it just gets worse and worse and worse. Um, and there's and in the midst of it, you've got some grisly imagery. So along those lines, it's a it's a logical follow up to Hereditary. Um, and but what I will say is that it's just it's it's so beautifully shot. Um, and again, it has it's like two and a half hours. It's got sort of this languid pace, and yet somehow I like I couldn't t- take my eyes off the screen because it's just so everything has so much there's just so much thought put into everything from the editing to the writing to the cinematography to the performances um and i think he also has tremendous sympathy for his characters um you know when you go into uh, a horror movie and you've got oh these are four kind of oblivious americans going into this situation you there is a part of you i think that revels in the idea of them being hurt or killed that's what uh hostile was about yeah um but i think he and he re- and he's not going to sugarcoat it like these characters are flawed they're kind of jerks uh but they certainly don't deserve this um and they're also like at the core of this is a relationship between a, a girlfriend and, and boyfriend who are their relationship. They've been growing apart for a long time. She lost her family in a horrible uh, freak accident and he tries to be there for her, but also just is unable to for the most part. And he is a lazy person, not just with her, but with other things as well. And a little bit inconsiderate but he's not a bad guy. He's, he's that, he's just that in the way that people in their twenties can be. Mm. Um, but we see things mostly from her point of view. So we just, we are, we are inclined to not really like him that much. So it, again, it's just, I, I like what Ari Aster does as a director and as a writer. I like the stuff that he's exploring because by his own admission at the core of this, it's kind of a breakup movie writ large emotionally. Hmm. Um, I will say that there comes a moment when, in fact, it's the last moment of the film. Okay. And I won't say what it is, yeah, okay. <laughs> but I will say that it didn't totally earn it for me. And so for the movie to end on that note, it's like, Oh, 
It's like, I'm, it's like, I, I am going to work on this and I'm going to try and make that work for me. <laughs> and, uh, it's still not quite there. Um, all right. Uh, uh, next up I watched for the first time. I can't believe I had never, this was, there's just a period when I first moved, uh, when I first left Chicago, moved to Los Angeles, there's a bunch of movies I missed. Sure. It was broke. I wasn't yet, uh, getting, you know, press screenings and screeners sure. and stuff like that. So there's a, there's a period of like, you know, Oh five to 2010 that I just, there's a lot of stuff I didn't see. So I finally caught up with Sophia Coppola's Marie Antoinette oh, in 2006. Yes. Um, you'll hear me say on a future Patreon episode that hasn't been released yet, that it, uh, uh forced me to go back and revise my top 10 of 2006. Sure. That's how much I loved, uh, Marie Antoinette because I've, uh, uh, you know, it's a, uh, is it is it the fo- her follow up to Lost in Translation? Yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a big, huge, ambitious uh, undertaking in terms of of you know obviously shooting at a place like Versailles and and building other sets and having costumes and 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 having this big sprawling cast that you didn't have in Lost in Translation. Um, and yet, I've never seen a an historical epic an historical biopic a period piece like this because it is first and foremost to see a sofia coppola movie yeah. more than anything else um it, it's uh it, it, it it's it, not a movie that is it is advocating for us thinking about marie antoinette differently than her reputation yes um although i think i i don't know i don't know where the discussion around Marie Antoinette was in 2006. I think in the intervening years, uh, um, we, we've come to realize that she wasn't uh, the villain that right. that she was made out to be at the time of the French Revolution, and, and since then, when she's known for the "let the meat cake" mm-hmm. thing, which she probably never said, right. and um, that uh, France is financial woes at the time weren't because she was spending a lot on 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 parties and right. and clothing because that's what literally chucks, every chucks <laughs> yeah that's what every royal across europe was doing at the time yeah. there were some other things uh but anyway that's not the point the movie isn't political in that sense the movie i think it positions you n- not from the present looking backward, even though there are some, uh, uh, very modern touches in the, in the music and yeah, uh, uh, converse and stuff like yeah. that. Um, but, uh, uh, but it also doesn't look at position you as, as a part of the, um, the, the peasant class or whatever, or doesn't, it's certainly also not from Marie Antoinette's point of view. Mm-hmm. The way I've come to think about it is it, it positions you as a member of the court of Versailles, specifically maybe one of her ladies in waiting sure. in that you are fascinated by her, but you'll, and, and jealous of her in some ways, and yet you'll never be close to her. On the other hand, you are sometimes very frustrated by her, yeah. but because you're in the audience and she's on the screen and also, you know, 220 something years ago, um, you can't speak up and that, like that, that, uh, that's what I found so fascinating is how often I would just boomerang from being sympathetic towards me internet to being very frustrated with her yeah. uh, um, and her, and her behavior and her way of thinking about things. Um, uh, that it feels like, uh, and I was talking because my wife and I watched it together. She had seen it before and already loved it. Um, and, and she was like, 
well, yeah, she's like 14 or 15 when you meet her and she kind of never grows up. Yeah. She's played by the same actress the whole time. But you have to remember, she was like, she was like our age when she died. She was like 37, 38 when she yeah. died. She's a grown ass woman by the end and still behaving like a 14, 15 yeah. year old. Uh, it's has, very frustrating, but also has uh, not to ex- excuse it necessarily, but like also has no reason to right? you know, when you have people waiting on you hand and foot and like, you're not in charge of anything really. Yeah. You are like, yeah, except for the parties. That's what, except that's, for the parties. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, that, that said, it's also very funny. The movie Jason mm-hmm. Schwartzman is very funny yeah. uh, in it. I like um, Danny Houston's couple of scenes. Sure, uh, uh, there. that can always be I, said. Yeah, um, I like that. Um, I mean, uh, Molly Shannon just disappears. Like, I like that. That's mm-hmm. not there's, and she's not the only one. There are a number of people at the court. Molly Shannon. I can't remember who's the one who's always with Molly Shannon. Who is the actress? I can't remember. It's been so long um, since I've seen it. But then that Asia Argento, you know, basically mm-hmm. once Rip Torn's character, Louis the Fifteenth, dies, there's a bunch of characters that we don't say goodbye to that just never show up again. Yeah. Uh, and I thought that was really a really interesting uh, way of handling that sort of transition. All right. I've gone on too long about the internet, but uh, yeah, it's, it's fucking it's great. It's marvelous. And yeah, I, I figured it'd be your kind of thing. Uh, okay. So next up for me is... Craig Brewer's Dolomite is my name, which, uh, did you see it? I've never seen a Craig Brewer movie. Oh, okay. It's a <laughs> weird, it's a weird brag. <laughs> We're getting into, uh, a lot of movies that I haven't seen on this. That's all right. But I guess hustle and flow and, uh, black snake moan came out during that period that I wasn't I seeing as true, many movies. Yeah. Um, um, and I've seen both of them, uh, and, and now this one. So I, I think I, I like him as a director. I could have seen black snake moan, because it came out early 2007. Is that right? That's about right. So I was at the arc. It was at the arc light. I worked at the arc light. I could have seen it for free. Yeah. And I didn't. I remember specifically going with my girlfriend at the time to another movie. We were just like going to see a movie, you know, not at the arc light. And she wanted to see black snake moan. And I was like, you know what? We can just go. I can get you in. We can see it for free at my work. Let's pick something that isn't playing at the arc light. Yeah. And so we saw Reno 911 Miami. <laughs> And uh, no complaints. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, they both have scenes of everybody masturbating. Um, (laughs) That's not true. Not far off, though, with Black Snake Moan. Um, But what has Crapeau made since Black Snake Moan? uh, Dolomite is my name is one of them. Um, but that's like uh, a, a decade. Yeah. Uh, uh, You know, when you talk about Dolomite is my name, I'll look up Craig Brewer. He did Footloose. That was him? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Never saw that one either. Um, and... Nothing really that I... It, apparently, he's making the Coming to America remake. Um, okay. He made a film well, in 2000 called The Poor and Hungry. So, yeah, he hasn't really made that many. He hmm. He's written some movies. He apparently wrote The Legend of Tarzan. Um, so, yeah. I wonder... Okay. You know what? I could see him doing a lot of TV. Um, I'm, I'm looking at Letterboxd, so... Uh, Oh yeah, he has. So done, he's done ten episodes of Empire. Okay, wow. Um, and then yeah, um, the Shield and Terriers. Okay. Yeah. All right, that's enough of that. Still so he's going to be okay, is what we're saying. Um, so yeah, Dolomite is my name. Uh, I don't know. I'm sure someone somewhere will like could condemn me for this for some kind of appropriation or something. But like in high school, I was fascinated by black exploitation movies. Yeah, we've talked about this before. Yeah. Um, I just, they, they just felt so different. And I think it's okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, uh, 
and I liked, you know, I enjoyed Shaft and Foxy Brown, and I really loved Superfly. Um, and then I watched Dolomite, and I remember, because I was in high school, and so as I'm watching, I'm like, this, okay, it's got all the feeling of these other movies, but it's also silly. Wait, is it trying to be silly? I can't tell now. And then there are some scenes I'm like, okay, that's, that's definitely trying to be silly. And, uh, and that's something that they kind of explain with this film, um, from the writers of Ed Wood. And it shows from a structure, from a structure standpoint, from a tone standpoint, and the idea of just celebrating this person who has such a, their own little corner of, of Hollywood. Um, the, the difference and Ed Wood is a, is a better movie. Um, but here it acknowledges that like where Edward D Wood jr. Wasn't really good at any of the stuff he did. Rudy Ray Moore. It just took him a while to find what he was good at. And it turned out that he had very specific instincts that the world just sort of needed to catch up to. Um, and so when he makes Dole and because he started out, well, he started out doing like music and all that kind of thing, mm-hmm. but he, he wanted to do comedy and then he got very famous as a, as a standup and turned this character Dolomite into its own movie and realized like, Oh no, this needs to be funny as well. Um, so it is meant to be amusing and it's, you know, unlike Ed Wood, there are people who genuinely connected with the work of Rudy Ray Moore and, um, the film definitely celebrates that it, it celebrates filmmaking and just mm. the idea of, <clears throat> Hey guys, let's put on a show specifically. There's this wonderful scene where, uh, Rudy and two of his friends, uh, something has gone. I don't remember exactly what, but something has gone well. And like, and they're going to celebrate by going to see a movie. And they'd heard great things about this movie, The Front Page, which is a, a Lemon and Mathau film. Okay. And uh, and so they go and see it, and they're just they just don't connect with it at all. It's just nothing about it look, looks like their life. Um, and so they decide, well, wait a minute, we need to make we need to make a movie for us and people like us. And so they start making Dolomite. And granted, they'd you know it's. Shaft had already been released and all that. So it's not like they blazed this trail, but from a comedic standpoint, they kind of did. And so it, it goes to this idea. I definitely feel like when people talk about representation and the film does have a line that's really on the nose where someone's a woman says like, I've never seen someone that looks like me up on the screen. It's like, okay, you, you already made the sale by the time you say that line. But this idea like, well, if no one's going to do this for us because clearly they don't, seem to care that much about us or even know that we're out there, then you know what? We're going to do it and it's going to connect with people. And it really does. And Eddie Murphy is, is marvelous. It's weird. He's not doing anything remarkably different than we see from Eddie Murphy, but he's just, he's channeling all that into this one character and really gets it. And so I feel like I'm not even looking at him, even though he's not really hiding himself either. Um, Wesley, great to see Wesley Snipes again. I love it. Um, and well, then you gotta see, um, Chirac. Oh, a couple yes. Years ago. Yes. Um, I heard great things. Um, but then uh, there's also just fun little things that I don't think I knew ever knew about uh, the movie Dolomite chiefly. So their cinematographer is this skinny little uh, white kid from UCLA played by <laughs> Cody Smith McPhee. 
and his name is I forget is Nicholas Joseph von Sternberg. His <laughs> grandfather is Joseph von Sternberg, <laughs> and uh, and so so like he comes from this very prestigious film family, and uh, but he's he gets pulled into this and he's part of, he's part of this family. And it's uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, it's kind of like when I first moved here and I worked at blockbuster, I worked with a guy named Tyler Coster and his grandfather is Henry Coster, director of Harvey and various other oh, things. Wow. And it was like, and he was, and this guy, Tyler was trying to be an actor. And I was like, I was like the fact that you're, grandfather directed Harvey is there anything you can do with that and he goes yeah no not really nobody cares anymore so uh, I guess yeah I guess so I, so I, I, en- I enjoyed it all right uh, next up uh, I really wanted to enjoy Casey Lemon's Harriet um, oh sure. like I mean talk about like a, a, a you know a, a biopic it's long overdue. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that there's not been a Harriet Tubman biopic before is, uh, is crazy. And I guess now we're still waiting yeah. <laughs> for the Harriet Tubman biopic that will, um, that will be worth it. Cause it's just, it's, it, it the movie is not curious mm-hmm. about Harriet Tubman. It treats her like a superhero. Sure. Because, uh, she was, the real Harriet Tubman, uh, uh, in many ways, I mean, she was like a superhero. She did like incredible things, but she claimed that she got messages from God and, um, the movie treats these as like her superpower. Like literally she's like (laughs) leading, she's leading like a group of escaped slaves. And we know like the slave catchers are waiting at the bridge and she just like stops and goes, we need to go that way or whatever, because she's gotten this basically yeah. her spidey sense is tingling. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's, that's the form that her messages from God, uh, come in. It's, I guess it's, the, the first one was always going to be this. You okay. know what I mean? Like I remember, uh, after Steve jobs died and the first thing they did was make a movie with, uh, Ashton Kutcher as Steve jobs. And by all accounts, it was terrible. Oh, right. And then, the movie Steve Jobs came out, yeah, and so it's like, all right, a lot of we got... didn't love. I, I liked it a lot, though. Um, the Steve Jobs. Oh, I, the, I, the I really, Boyle. yeah, I like I really Danny Boyle. I like, uh, I like, I like Seth Rogen. Yeah, and you gotta I acknowledge Jeff, the Apple II team. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Jeff Daniels, and I love the structure of that screenplay. It's so unique, and and it actually it surprised me. I didn't think Aaron Sorkin had that kind of decision in him. All oh, right, I forgot that um, Aaron Sorkin. But yeah, um, so it's almost like, okay, we got the first movie after Steve Jobs died out of the way. Okay, that's done. Now it's time to make room for a real movie, and maybe that's what's going to happen. Maybe. It's unfortunate, because you've got uh, Cynthia Erivo is doing great work. She's really, uh, really I good. Like you've got um, uh, her father is played by Clark Peters. Is that the oh, actor? Right, yeah. yeah, he's he's really good. Um, but uh, so yeah, the movie is not very interested in her. Also, it unnecessarily creates a sort of thriller plot line where mm-hmm. while she's just, I mean, not that uh, obviously what she's doing is thrilling. That's why I'm saying it's unnecessary that she's you know going after having escaped uh, uh, the cells. She goes back in repeatedly to help other slaves escape that's that's incredible yeah the movie apparently doesn't think that's doing enough so it builds this plot line uh that follows her former uh uh owner i guess um played by it boy joe alwyn um and so it's him and a slave catcher um tracking her down and that so that's like the 
the parallel plot there's a whole movie it doesn't need to happen it, yeah uh even though like uh there are a few like cassie lemons builds a few sequences on her own in there that are like oh that's a decent like sort of thriller set piece it's weird that it's in the harriet tubman biopic yeah. though uh it, yeah it's it's just very thin thin soup and a waste of a good cynthia rio performance yeah. um and uh uh yes yeah, so even like uh, i've often been a fan of cinematographer john toll is everything's just and the music is terrence blanchard you've got this great yeah but it's not good like i don't understand it it's just, everything feels so safe and watered down that's too bad um okay so uh, i was gonna ask you before uh when you were talking about dolomite okay because uh, apparently listeners like when we talk about our fantasy awards teams do you think having seen it now uh, our friend Ian, friend of the show, Ian Brill, is he uh, is he in good position with Eddie Murphy? Uh, he'll do. Best he'll do okay. Okay. Uh, who knows uh, if there will be an Oscar nomination there? But there will definitely be a Golden Globe, and who knows there will, if in Critics Awards where there are like nominations, maybe. Uh, I think okay. he'll, I, he'll get enough points to I think justify picking him. Uh, I don't know if it was his I, first pick. I am fascinated by and kind of feel bad for the the widely held the sort of consensus view of what happened with Eddie Murphy's Oscar nomination for dream girls, which is that if Norbit hadn't come out before the Oscars, yeah. he would have won. But Norbit came out during the yeah. voting period and everyone suddenly, uh, was less in awe of Eddie Murphy because he made this embarrassing, yeah. uh, he made dream movie. girls and then went back to being Eddie Murphy. <laughs> yeah. And, and that Norbit, uh, Norbit's sort of January or February release slot essentially cost him an Oscar. I find that fascinating. I don't know if it's true. It feels true to me. It could be true, but at the same time, it was also Alan Arkin's turn. You know what I mean? For Little Miss Sunshine. But I mean, I guess you're right. Um, but uh, you, I mean, if you're talking about Oscar voters voting for a narrative, the Eddie Murphy narrative would have been a good one. Sure. Too. Absolutely. So, all right. Um, That's we're way off, off, okay. off track. What did you see? So, we have, uh, all right, a little bit of background here. I was talking with my Monday night uh, class, and this was several weeks ago, so we were talking about scary movies. And, you know, so these are, there are a couple college kids in there, but these are mostly high schoolers getting college credit. All right? So they're like 20 years younger than me. Um, so we have no frame of reference on like the stuff we grew up with, certainly. Um, and they all referenced this, icon- this to them iconic Disney Channel Halloween movie that I had not heard of until they mentioned it. Okay, it's called Halloween Town. Yep, from nineteen ninety eight. Never heard of it. It's got Debbie Reynolds. Ah. And uh, it apparently was very successful. It spawned three Disney Channel sequels. Um, and I was like, I have not heard of it. And they said, you should watch it. And I said, if I watch it, if I pay the money to watch this thing, I'm going to tell you what I think of it. <laughs> and they're just like, okay, sure. I was like, you know what we're talking about, right? And they said, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I did watch it. I want the end of the story to be that you loved it. No. No, that's too That bad. is not the end of the story. That would have been a great story. The story... The Oscar voters would have voted for that story. What I have to say has actually less to do with the film itself and more to do with who I am now okay. as a viewer, specifically 
as far as being industry savvy. And I wouldn't say that I am that industry savvy, but we know how things work. Okay. Here's the story in the 1998 Disney Channel movie Halloween Town. You have these kids uh, living in just kind of a suburb. They live with their mom and, you know, everything's fine. Uh, and then a regular town, just a just a, a regular town. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then uh, and it's Halloween, but their mom doesn't let them celebrate Halloween. She has her own reasons. Okay. That, that aren't don't seem to be religious at all, and then their their grandma, who is very obviously a witch, uh, comes to <laughs> comes to vi- played by Debbie Reynolds, uh, comes to visit them and is and is uh, very uh, uh, very enthusiastic and says, "Oh, let them celebrate Halloween and all that kind of thing." But then her mom can only stay for one night a year on Halloween, I guess, uh, and then she goes back. And but the the kids. Uh, one of them thinks that she might have magical powers too. So they stow away on a magical bus, which takes them off to this magical place called Halloween town where they realize, Oh my gosh, I'm a witch. He's a wizard. Uh, or sorry, a warlock. We were this the whole time, but we just didn't know. But now we're in this new magical world and now we're learning the rules. We're learning how it operates, but there's this threat that's going on. And, uh, this, uh, this evil entity is Uh like kidnapping and freezing people and like stealing their soul, but they're not dead. Um, and it turns out that the guy that uh, that was just like the the uh, alter ego of the well-respected mayor of Halloween Town, okay. dressed in big black flowing robes with long black flowing hair. Okay, does that, in the broadest sense, sound familiar to you? Well, I guess the witch and wizard thing is Harry Potter. Yeah. The first Harry Potter book came out in 1997. Yeah, so they rushed this. Everything about, like, as I'm watching them, it's like, this seems, and the tone of it, and the discovery of it, and it's so cheap as well. It, it's very, very cheap. And so I'm like, okay, I see what's going on here. Like, yeah. I could see everything behind it, which is like, Disney is like, fuck, we don't own the rights to this. Warner Brothers does. <laughs> but what can we do that is not that is legally distinguishable from this thing. And sure enough, it caught on. And so when I, when I brought that up to my students and I was like, I can see all the, the, the boardroom things happening mm-hmm. and I can see them rushing through this and the kids there, they weren't discouraged, but they're like, Oh yeah, it is like Harry Potter. And sure enough, it was popular enough at the time for them to create yeah, I was several say, sequels. How, how does it compare? I'm assuming you watched the whole series. So what's your favorite Halloween town, Halloween town Two: Calabar's revenge, uh, Halloween town high or return to Halloween town, Halloween that's town the, high. That's the best one. Yeah. All right. I only saw the first one, obviously, but, uh, <laughs> so it was more just like, you know, I was, a, it, it was very cheap. It was very poorly written. Uh, structurally it's a mess. It's always fun to see Debbie, Debbie Reynolds and she's clearly enjoying herself. And then I realized that the woman who played the mom, it's like, Oh, she played April O'Neil in the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Judith movie. Hoke. Yeah. So I was like, Hey, that's fun. Uh, she seems to be, yeah, she's in all of them, all four of them. Yeah. Debbie Reynolds is only in like one in three for some reason. Yeah. Maybe it's a Aladdin situation where Robin Williams did the voice of the genie in the first one was replaced with Dan Castellaneta because he's too expensive. And then when they made a third straight to video, uh, Aladdin sequel, Robin Williams came back. I think I'm wrong. I think Debbie Reynolds 
does actually appear in all of them. Oh, She's okay. higher build in the first. I, I feel like maybe two and four might be cameos. Uh, that's possible. Yeah. Um, but yeah, right. so my thoughts about the film had less to do with the film than itself and more to be like, Oh, right. Disney is not going to be left out of this wizard shit, <laughs> you know? All right. Uh, next up for me, I watched all three and a half hours of the Irishman and I all made right. it. I did not have to take a bathroom break. Hey. Yeah, I was very proud of myself um, because I did not make it through Endgame. Mm-hmm. And that was only three hours, a mere three hours and one minute. That was a whole 28 minutes shorter yeah. than the three hour and 29 minute Irishman. Uh, and, and I made it. All right. So what did you watch? No. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I really liked it. Um, it wasn't quite the movie I was expecting, I think, in a good way. Um, in that... Uh, it feels like and it feels like what it is like an older more mature more workmanlike view of the gangster life than yeah there, there's so much um like i mean there are some sort of fun or funny like scorsese things that happen but a lot of it is just like yeah most like yes this guy the character in the movie whether or not the real guy actually ever killed anyone is uh hotly debated actually mm-hmm. but i mean i heard he painted houses. Uh, <laughs> the version of him in the movie yeah he killed a lot of people in his time but in between he was just a regular work like his job was being a gangster and most of the time it was just a job like yeah. it wasn't you don't see the like um you know, we, I do think Scorsese is doing it on purpose. You do see the Copacabana, but it's not the Copacabana scene from Goodfellas. It's actually not really a happy scene at all. Um, it also has, there's two things I really didn't like. Okay. Very brief things, very brief cameos, stunt casting. I did not like Jim Norton plays Don Rickles. Didn't I, care about that. I read that. Didn't care for that. Steven Van Zant plays Jerry Vale. Also didn't care. Okay. Steven Van Zant is not like, He's either Stephen Van Zandt or he's Silvio Dante, and that's sure. I, I don't. That, that's that's the end of his range. I, I'm I can't interested I don't buy to, him. I'm interested to know if Jim Norton is considered a cameo by most people, or to, oh, to comedy maybe. people. You oh, know? maybe. Yeah, I feel like. Well, yeah, I guess you're right. Um, so yeah, uh, 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 a lot of the movie. I, I feel like the length of the movie actually becomes sort of like a structuralist choice, where he's like, he, he, "Yeah, you're getting into the fact that this is gonna, the movie's gonna be a slog because this guy's life was a slog." But that mm-hmm. sounds like a bad thing. I really like the movie. I think it's very good. Yeah. Um, but there are long stretches of the movie that I think are not really fun. I think even the like assassination type sequences are generally not fun yeah um uh they're they're kind of like usually very quick or kind of like unglamorous or just like i said workmanlike um there was something else oh but then where where he does have fun uh is um al pacino as jimmy hoffa is he's great and also he is like it's perfect for late period, more scenery chewing Al Pacino, Al Pacino to be playing this character because sure. that's who he was. You know, he was like, if Murray from Goodfellas somehow like made it big <laughs> and actually had some sway, yeah. like that's essentially what, uh, who Jimmy Hoffa is. And he's, uh, th- I, I use the word frustrating to describe Marie Antoinette. Sometimes Jimmy Hoffa is very frustrating sure. in that he like, 
<laughs> it's like it would be if he weren't like really in danger of getting killed it would be comical how much he's not getting how much danger he's in yes yeah. <laughs> um that's but, a big part of the movie hoffa as well did you ever see it i, I saw yeah i saw With, it when i was younger yeah, i remember uh i remember even then thinking danny devito was making some showy choices sure basically the whole like lawrence arabia you blow out the match you cut mm-hmm. to the sunrise thing Hoffa does that for every transition in and out of the flashbacks. Yeah. Um, it does some sort of match cut like that. Um, that uh, uh, even at the time at like fifteen, I was like, "All right." <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's not the point. Um, yeah, the movie's very good. Uh, I will address the elephant in the room, which is the de aging technology. Sure. And I will also say what I, I've read enough reviews to realize a lot of people felt the same way I did. As far as the faces, you get used to it real quick. The thing you don't get used to is that no matter what age, age they're playing, it's a seventy-plus-year-old body playing uh, yeah. them. And there's there's a part that, during one of the parts where I think uh, De Niro's character, the Irishman, uh, the Irishman is supposed to be. He has a name. I'm just going to call him the Irishman. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm guessing it's supposed to be like, this, is like, one, this is the part where Irishman gets mad. <laughs> yeah, like early, he's supposed to be like maybe early forties, and uh, this like shop owner has disrespected his daughter and like he kicks the shit out of the guy in front of his daughter. It's a very traumatizing moment for his daughter that echoes throughout the movie. But I also like, I'm like, I don't believe that he's hurting anyone because he's like, <laughs> supposed to be like literally stomping on the guy's like arm and breaking his arm. But I'm like, but it's like, it's 70 something year old Robert Niro, like sort of holding his arms at his side and like trying not to fall over while he's kicking. It's, <laughs> I don't mean to be ageist. Well, uh, you know, uh, with any luck I will live to be that old sure. uh, and still be as hale and hearty as Robert De Niro is but it does it does uh, it's I didn't expect when talking about the de-aging technology I was like oh the face is going to look rubbery and they kind of do but you get used to it I did not expect the thing that would take me out of it yeah. to be the way the body people's bodies move mm. uh, alright so I read I read your review and I had this thought and um, it might not be a perfect uh, analogy but like watching based on again your review and now your comments like watching the irishman expecting goodfellas is like watching brotherhood expecting the sopranos like okay, brotherhood yeah. we both watch it it's a great show yeah tonally very there's a real mournful yeah. quality to it yeah and that's um, that's what i got i got here there are there are some funny conversations there's a conversation between uh Jesse Plemons plays Jimmy Hoffa's son okay and I'm trying to remember the name of the guy. I think he's a stand-up, actually, in real life, um, who plays this just sort of mafia guy. Mm-hmm. And they have a conversation about buying fish at the market that is the funniest thing in the movie. Uh, uh, I loved it. Um, I can't think of it. I can't find the guy. Uh, that's really good. I'm, lo- I'm looking. I'm forgetting. Dominic Lombardozzi is in it. Oh, nice. He's great, but also it's like he's in old age makeup the entire time. And it's like, why didn't you, I, yeah. I guess Donald Clumber Dozy is great. I'm glad he's in this movie, sure. but why didn't you just hire, you're doing all this de You're doing the stuff. other way. Yeah. Yeah. Why didn't you just hire an old guy or just digitally age him? Yeah. Just yeah. use that app. Um, and then, um, oh yeah, Stephen Graham's in it. He's always great. I love Stephen Graham. And then I was very happy. You mentioned the Sopranos. Uh, Joe Pesci's wife is played by Catherine Narducci. That's fun. Yeah. Uh, uh, Carmaine Bucco, Carmaine, Charmaine, Carmaine. Charmaine. I think Charmaine. Charmaine Bucco. Yeah. Um, well, and Stephen Graham, you never 
watched uh, Boardwalk Empire. Boardwalk Empire. No. He plays uh, Al Capone in that. Oh. Um, so, okay. All right. What did you watch? Next up for me, a movie that I watched for personal reasons that will become clear in the next episode, uh, in the upcoming episode. Okay. I watched... Um, let me make sure I've, uh, Mark Steven Johnson's ghost Rider from 2007. Holy shit. This movie is awful. Another movie that came out while I worked at the Arclight that I never saw. I think you're fine. Um, you know, it's, I mean, it's 2007. We, we were getting, we had plenty of superhero movies by then, but it's still, there are still like these stray superhero movies like the Punisher, like the Ben Affleck daredevil like right. this, where it's just like, we don't yet don't get me wrong. I'm not, I don't want a movie that necessarily adheres to a formula. That's not an inherent good, but right. it can provide a reliable structure <laughs> that ghost Rider does not have. Hmm. Um, and it just, it, it definitely doesn't. I'm fine with it not feeling like a superhero movie either. The Ghost Rider character is not a standard superhero uh, kind of thing, so I guess we just stick with comic book. But even then, the the choices that the director makes to make Johnny Blaze look cool, um, and the fact that Nicolas Cage just steers right into him, uh, it, it. I'm just. I was rolling my eyes the whole time. It is so ridiculous and over the top, and it's it's melodramatic in a bad way. And I mean, I was so I rented it on YouTube, and so as I will sometimes do when I rent something on YouTube because it allows comments. So I look at the comments and people are like, this is my, oh my gosh, I can't wait. You know, I, I bought this the minute it popped up on YouTube. Like, I love this movie. It's one of my favorite movies. I'm like, what, what is wrong with you people? <laughs> Have you seen other movies? Any other movies? It's, it really is like, I can, I can enjoy Nicolas Cage, like reveling in a role. Um, if, if the role is like bad Lieutenant port of call, New Orleans, or or the movie Joe or whatever. I didn't see Mandy, but I, I, you know, I heard that he, at least he's a lot of fun. Um, no, man, he's good. Uh, kick ass. He's, he's really great. Like he can commit to, if the, if there's something there, he can commit to it. But this is a situation where the character is so generic in many, just like such a generic movie, badass. um, that the only thing that elevates it is his performance. But if the writing is not there and it's just his performance, then it just looks like em- uh, empty affectation. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, boy, what a bad movie. It's too bad. We never got the, uh, and I had to look this up because I couldn't remember the name of it, but the, never we got the Nicholas Cage, Thomas Jane, Hugh Jackman, hearts of darkness. <laughs> I, yeah. Team up. Um, I remember I loved that when I was a kid, yeah, I read those, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but I had to look up parts of dark. I, I couldn't remember the name of the team. Anyway, well, uh, did you ever see Punisher Warzone with uh, Ray Stevens? Oh no, I forgot about that one. Okay, that's that's, that's that's part of the Gotham, uh, the short-lived Gotham Knights. There, I don't know how many of those there were, okay. but it was Punisher Warzone. It was rated R for violence, and Ray Stevenson uh, did a pretty good job. Um, Marvel Knights. Marvel Knights. What yeah. did I say? You said Gotham Knights. Oh, pardon me. Yeah, because Marvel you were anticipating my next movie, which is Todd Phillips' Joker. Oh yes. Okay. Um, that's, I, that's exactly the reason. Yeah. I um, left the screening of Joker almost giddily in awe of how massively imbecilic this movie is. It is so misguided and so 
thoroughly stupid. Mm-hmm. And yet I can't quite bring myself to say it's bad. I mean, I, I put like one and a half stars on Letterboxd. It's, it's bad, but I don't like saying it's bad because there were very few moments watching the movie that I was like, I wish I were doing something else. I was happy to be watching the movie. Yeah. I like what Joaquin Phoenix is doing a lot. Absolutely. I like, uh, what Lawrence Shear is doing, the, the cinematographer. I tend mm-hmm. to like his, um, cause he shot all three of the hangover movies. I like the way they look. Mm-hmm. They look, uh, uh, the the analogy that I've that I do you ever when you're watching a movie that you aren't going to be reviewing do you ever think oh, I wish that I were reviewing this because you come up with uh, uh, things to say thought, yeah. so sometimes I the, review it anyway the Hangover movies and Joker the Lawrence Shear look is it has the look of something plastic that was left in a hot car sure. you know what I mean it's like kind of gross but also kind of compelling and strange to look at um yeah that's 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 the way i describe uh, the the hangover movies and 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 the joker in terms of look um i'm not nuts about um todd phillips use of music i because it's something i like in the hangover movies his use of music because he tends to go for the obvious choices and that works. I think for the hangover and who those characters are, it felt a little like as much as I love cream, like in the white room, yeah, yeah. is that called white room? Was the yeah. name of that song? Yeah. I love it's called. Actually, I don't know. Yeah. I truly love that song, but when it came on, I was like, come on, Ted, like dig a little deeper. Although but, the, I'll say this, like the use of, I don't even remember the name of the song, the Gary glitter song, the rock and roll part two. Yeah. yeah. Um, which I've not, it's been over a week and I've not been able to get it out of my head. Sure. And I think that's used very well because of the context. Like we see him dancing yeah. down the stairs to that song and okay. Spoilers, everybody. He's on his way to kill himself and that he is so publicly excited and liberated by that. And that this right. is the song that's happening. I feel like moments like that. I'm okay with a really on the nose musical choice. I think it works well. So, um, yeah so there are things that i liked about it the script is the issue it is the script and also the fact that like todd phillips his philosophy which is that he's i think in a very juvenile way very proud that he has nothing to say i think he (laughs) he thinks nihilism is a cool or solipsism is a cool concept um which is something that i moved past by my sophomore year of high school i think um uh, that's, that's idiotic. There is stuff, there's stuff in the movie that I laughed at. There's a couple of slapsticky moments with a handgun, yeah. which feel like on the one hand, irresponsible given today's climate of conversation. But I also in a provocateur type way, I like that he does. Mm-hmm. I like that irresponsibility. Um, and that's the good, that's the thing that I, when Todd Phillips is on, like, Okay. <laughs> Normally, when we use the word uncompromising mm-hmm. about uh, an artist, we are talking about integrity and principle. Yeah. Todd Phillips is uncompromising out of idiocy, I think. And I can't support that, but it sometimes leads to uh, things that are fun and fascinating to watch. And so I think, yeah, having 
broad a broad comic moment where a live handgun falls out of a clown's uh, costume while he's entertaining yeah. uh, kids with cancer is um, it, I laughed out loud. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, I mentioned it to my wife after she, afterwards. She was like, "Yeah, you liked that," like because I kept. La- I guess I laughed like into the next scene because I thought it was so funny that that happened. And the first time the gun goes off is so yeah. funny to me but that that said there's also a lot of stuff i laughed at that i clearly wasn't supposed to sure the 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 sort of more um what what should be the the more moments of exaltation and the weighty moments you know of 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 him coming into whatever he's destined to be that i was yeah. like this is, i was laughing this is so stupid so yeah the movie is ridiculously stupid ridiculously not just shallow because shallow is one thing. Yeah. It's that at least a movie that's shallow knows what it's saying and just doesn't go beyond that. This movie has no idea what it's about. But I, it's that's the thing. It doesn't know what it's about, but it's about it so hard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Since since the movie journal where I talked about it, I have thought more about the movie and I think I come out as more negative on it than I did. Uh, I like the cinematography. I like some of the directing choices and I love Joaquin Phoenix. Um, and I feel like, and what I've started saying is that like, he is so good and he is so committed. Like he finds stuff that's not there to such an extent that I think he elevates the script so that you think there's something there, but there really isn't what's there is what he's doing. And he's doing some great stuff. And also he's like, it's a big performance, and yet he finds ways to downplay some of the dumber stuff in the script. Yeah. There's a line where he literally says, someone's asking him his opinions of the politics that are going on. And he says, I don't believe in any of that stuff. I don't believe in anything. And I feel like yeah. in Todd Phillips mind, that's like a, I don't believe in anything. That's like a yeah. statement. He says it in this, like, Oh, I don't believe in any of that stuff. I don't believe in anything. Like he just yeah. like throws it away. And that's, that's it's a, yes. it's a much better line because of the way that he throws it away. I remember the movie Roger Dodger, uh, which I really love. And Campbell Scott, the whole cast is great, but Campbell Scott's, uh, really marvelous in it. And, uh, there's a line, in it where um, his nephew played by Jesse Eisenberg says like but you said this and then the line is I say a lot of things and Campbell Scott opted to throw that away uh-huh. as opposed to like just laden it down yeah. with meaning um, it's like this the line has inherent meaning so you don't need to add anything more to that as an actor and I think yeah I think walking uh, fan his instincts are just so good uh, and that's a great example. Um, last thing I'll say, compared to the last two movies I talked about in a row were Robert De Niro <laughs> movies. Robert De Niro is great in The Irishman. Robert De Niro can't overcome the the stupidity of the script and the character that he's playing in Joker. Yeah. He, he is not a real person at all. I don't believe him as a real person. I said this to you off mic. Uh, Mark Marin as the, like... Uh, producer of the show who has yeah. maybe four lines is more of a character than Robert De Niro is. Because, and it's not even really, seen... it's not really Robert De Niro's fault. I think like the character exists as a, to, 
to spur character development sure. of Arthur Fleck, the Joker. If you, but I think as strange as this is to say about Robert De Niro, he does not have the skill set required to take that character and do something with it. You get somebody like Mark Maron, mm-hmm. you get an actual comedian in there with some maybe some acting chops like a Ray Romano or somebody like that uh, who could also kind of have this old timey feel as well. You do that. And the character will automatically feel more lived in, more real. As it is, yeah, he just feels like a full-on device at that point. All right, what's next for you? Next for me is a film I don't think you care for. Okay. It's exciting? Yeah. The movie Jojo Rabbit. Oh, yeah. No. There are elements that I love. I love that. Their names kid. are Stephen Merchant. <laughs> well, it's that kid is great. Like he is, I think he does a great yeah, job. I think you're right, his yeah. friend does. <laughs> he's delightful. His friend, yeah, definitely got in this, <laughs> this, the screening. I was at a TIFF. Definitely, the biggest laughs all came from yeah. the the best friend. Yeah, these assholes that uh, that were in the theater with me. Uh, who occasionally would just like say, they'd be like, like, Whoa, like that. And it's like, this is off putting. And then I, and then afterwards I saw that one of them was wearing a neighbor jacket. So I feel like that it all works out. Um, but anyway, when, when we, when it is revealed, cause I don't think anybody assumed that that character was going to be dead by the end, but that just maybe we saw the last of him. And so then when we see him just hanging out very casually, <laughs> the guy, the guy in front, he's, he goes, he goes, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know what? I was kind of with him. Yeah. If, if it's a genuine reaction. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm okay um, with. So yeah, yeah, I, I love, I love, I love m- many of the actors. I think that they don't quite understand what they're doing with Sam Rockwell's character, but I like what he's doing. I think, Scarlett Johansson does a great the, job. And then the Sam Rockwell character is one of my biggest problems with the movie, sure. but I also feel like I can't get into it without, because a lot of people haven't seen the movie yet. Yes. I, I, I can't get into it without being a, a revealing plot developments. Um, but yeah, uh, he's, he's a troubling character because they, they want to have him be everything. Hmm. Um, and granted within like our introduction to Sam Rockwell, I love him in that moment. Like his, his performance just, he's so, <laughs> so dismissive uh-huh. and just be like, why would this good question? You know, um, I enjoy that. I think Thomason McKenzie, I think yeah. she does a great job in their good, scenes yeah. together. Are solid. There's a lot. I mean, what I like is almost exclusively the exclusively the actors. There are scenes that I like, but overall it just, it very much felt like a movie that was far less than the sum of its parts. Like I can't find a in the screenplay, I suppose, but like a lot of the filmmaking elements and performance elements, um, I can't really find fault in them. And yet when you add them all together, the way Taika Waititi has done, it amounts to something that I think back of as think back on as enjoyable, but never one complete whole. It feels like just a bunch of disparate elements that never quite come together. And there's a, deeply flawed screenplay it's not i think it's more than just the screenplay being deeply flawed i think the the problem is that i i I can't understand the motivation for making this movie um it doesn't have anything interesting or new or insightful or impactful to say i don't think about about uh hatred and allegiance and and yeah. and these sort of these sort of things so i don't understand it feels like a, it's touchy subject matter sure that i think would have worked as satire if it were 
more bold, but it feels like uh, the obvious comparison is life is beautiful. It's like a feel good movie about Nazis and the Holocaust. uh, And that's, we've had enough of that. That's not, it's not new. It's not daring. Yeah. I mean, fucking Chaplin did it. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it, it is, it's, it's a potentially touchy subject matter handled as safely as possible. And it feels new maybe because you've got Taika Waititi's specific brand of sense of humor. Sure. In some cases, in some places, um, I think there's, but it's not, that's not enough to overcome it. His humor and his energy. He has a very specific energy as a filmmaker and as a performer that I think works in a lot of situations, but here I think it, it, it feels so novel but when it comes right down to it, it really isn't that much. Um, as far as like at the core of it, the kid and the the girl being hidden, that relationship works pretty well. And their scenes, I think, are the best ones. And then I do actually like I feel like either we needed to cut out this is going to sound strange, needed to cut out the Hitler character or have him a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I like I I do like the progression that that character starts out as so goofy and fun and then progressively gets uh f- visually and verbally uglier as mm-hmm. we go because the character's realizing who this actually is. Right. I like that, but I feel like we don't have enough transitions like I forget that he's in it and then he just shows up. I'm like, oh, right, this conceit. I forgot. Right, yeah, it does go with, yeah. You know, so, yeah. Well, I I'll, return, I'll say again that I did like Stephen Merchant as the, uh, it's a very Monty Python-esque the version t- of the, well, yeah. I, I feel like this is a guy who's a Nazi, not because he believes in the purity of the Aryan race, but because he loves bureaucracy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that, that's, uh, that's what, that's the appeal to him. And I, and like that moment where he's like, two feet taller than Sam Rockwell. <laughs> that, that seems like a very money pipe. I just like too. when Sam Rockwell's like, uh, did I miss anything? And he's like, no, we were just Tyler Hitlering each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a good bit of casting. All right. Uh, next up, I'm not going to spend very long on this because it feels like it would be mean to dwell on it okay. because it's a movie no one's ever heard of and it's not very good, but it's a movie called the warrior queen of John C. It comes out next week and it is a, based on the true story of a, an Indian queen, uh, the queen of an Indian, like, uh, I guess they have to, I, I don't understand really the sort of, uh, political breakdown of India in the 1800s, but, uh, she's a queen of like a province. Uh, and it's true, true story that this woman, uh, led a rebellion against the occupying British forces at the time. Interesting story. Um, I'm, sure i'd love to read a book or a long form magazine article about it but the movie version of it just seems like it seems like it seems like you were watching a documentary about this person that had some of those like uh history channel level dramatizations in it and then they just made a whole movie out of the dramatizations (laughs) that's how the movie feels um it's yeah it's cheap looking and dry and uh it goes a little bit it helps a little bit that you've got um some veteran character actors like rupert everett and Derek jacoby uh chewing the scenery um Rupert Everett is maybe going a little too far, which is very Rupert Everett of him. Uh, Derek Jacoby is uh, uh, a better presence, but he's in it less. Um, He's the prime minister. I can't remember who was the prime minister in 1850, uh, 1858, whatever year it was. Sorry, I'm not that much of a scholar. Um, Such an ugly American. uh, Yeah. Uh, 
but uh yeah not worth not worth your time okay uh, so the last film for me, and then you've got one more, right? Yeah. Yep. Uh, the last film for me is another film that I watched for my own personal reason. Um, it is the 2000 Western South of Heaven, West of Hell. Okay. Um, a film that I, I remembered from when I worked at a video store. Um, it was a movie that didn't do well at all. It was a huge bomb. Uh, it was hmm. written by, directed by... Com- uh, music composed by and starring Dwight Yoakam. And really? it is, as you know, I have issues about whenever an actor decides to direct. Um, maybe doubly so when the actor is a musician first. And this to me is exactly why. Not a bad screenplay. And the music but is good. I like, what if they, because. You're reminding me of a movie with a somewhat similar title in which it's a musician who went straight to directing, never acted. Okay. And I can't remember his name, but the movie Slow West from a few years ago, it's like oh, one, yes. one of the guys from the beta band just like, yeah, like I'm going to make a, uh, a weird Western and it's really good. I, yeah, I didn't see it. I heard good things about it. Um, but yeah, uh, I like Dwight Yoakam as an actor. Uh, I liked him in Logan Lucky and Sling Blade and uh, Panic Room. Like the, he don't has, forget Red Rock West. Red He's Rock, only in that's it right, for yeah. a minute or so. <laughs> for a moment, yeah, yeah. Um, and then I never saw the Newton Boys. Uh, but I, I saw remember, that, but I don't remember it very well. He's he has kind of a featured role. Like I think he's a he's a supporting actor and and also has a, a kind of a chilly disposition that allows him to be a villain. But here he's the hero. Uh, and he's a very dispassionate, frankly boring hero, especially when he's surrounded by a much more interesting cast, including Billy Bob Thornton, Vince Vaughn, Bridget Fonda, uh, the dearly departed and very missed Michael Jeter, uh, Paul Rubens. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, it's a good cast, and the film is shot pretty well, and the music is good, but I think he, as a director, just... First off, I think it's a fairly undisciplined screenplay, but I, I'm kind of okay with that when it's a Western. Um, but I feel like he just doesn't... I think he mistakes like meditative for just sluggish and maybe directionless. Like st- that, that, old, that idea that I love from Mother Night where it's like, I'm standing in one place because I have no reason to go in any direction. And that, that's what this movie feels like. Is I guess it does have reasons to go, but it doesn't it just doesn't want to move in any direction um, or it doesn't know how. And so like the, I feel like if this screenplay and this cast and the score were given to, if you'll pardon me, an actual director, um, it would have been much more effective as it is. I wouldn't, I looked at the reviews and their uh, critics hated it. I wouldn't go as far as say it's interminable, but you can see all the elements there. They just needed to be mixed right. And he doesn't, he doesn't mix them right. Uh, all right, uh, that was your last one. Yep. All right, so my last one was um, a new movie called Les Misérables. It is okay. not based on the Victor Hugo uh, uh, novel uh, at all. Uh, it is not a musical at all, but uh, it is a modern day story that is called Les Misérables because it takes place mostly around a um, housing project outside of Paris called the Victor Hugo Housing okay. Project. Um, and there are other similarities that uh, I won't really get too much into. Um, but uh it is about it has sort of a training day kind of plot in that it's about a 
uh, a cop who is it's his first day in a new unit the street crimes unit and so he spends the day driving around with his these two established members of of the unit um uh, as they uh basically uh harass and exploit the people of this uh housing project um and then there's an altercation with some youths that uh, goes wrong and one of the youths gets hurt. And so the, na- the engine of the plot from then on is that the, this new guy is sort of trying to navigate between um, his duties as a police officer and his humanity where he wants uh, this kid who gets hurt to not die, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it has... There's a lot, I think, in the filmmaking that I really enjoy. I really enjoyed the movie for the most part. And I think it's one of those movies that when I look back on in a few weeks or months, I'll like better. But I had enough of a quarrel with the way that it ended. Mm-hmm. That that's still fresh in my mind right now. I feel like, um, yeah, filmmaking-wise, it's very uh, urgent, but also honest and naturalistic. Um it has an opening sequence that's a total killer. That's a just a a, a, a blast. Of, before we meet any of the kids mm-hmm. or any of the gang or any of sorry any of the cops or the gangsters, we meet just the kids and they're um, because uh, increasingly American cities are becoming the same way. But Paris for a long time has been the opposite of what American cities were for a long time, where the housing projects and and the working class don't live in the city center; they live in the suburbs, and the city center is mostly. Uh, basically it's all been gentrified already. Mm-hmm. Um, Paris was gentrified uh, a century and a half before uh, we thought to gentrify Williamsburg and Park Slope. Anyway, um, and so the opening sequence is of all these kids taking the train into Paris to celebrate because, I don't know, something soccer. France won something? Okay. I don't know. I don't know about soccer. Them. But it's basically like you see these happy kids and you see throngs of cheering people a very a very multicultural very happy very french crowd cheering the france team it's a it's a moment of uh elation and triumph that i think makes the sort of uh wire-esque dive into how community relationships community relationships between classes races and the cops and haves and haves not have nots actually works it makes it all the more uh uh deflating and all the more upsetting so yeah i'm talking myself just talk about the movie i'm talking myself into liking it again mm-hmm. i just the end of the movie had a little bit too much of the it was a little too very fine people on both sides type sure. of, uh, it, uh, um, it, yeah, it was, it was too, too balanced. I think, um, when I would have liked it to pick a side and me being who I am politically, I would have liked to like for it to have picked one side more than the other. Sure. But, um, uh, I, I, I don't like this sort of standoff that it ends with. Um, but like I said, when I think back on the movie in a few weeks, I'll probably be thinking less about that and more about the, you know, 95 minutes that I really enjoyed uh, yeah. up until that point. Uh, all right, that's it. 